And please join me in a prayer for illumination. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Help us now to hear and obey what you are saying to your church. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our Old Testament reading today comes from Psalm 123, a song of ascents. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in heaven. As the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than its fill of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today's Gospel reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. You can follow along on page 917 of your pew Bible if you would like to. Listen now for God's word to you and to me. Jesus left that place and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. They said, where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Then Jesus said to them, prophets, are not without honor except in their hometown and among their own kin and in their own house. And he could do no deed of power there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Then he went about among the villages teaching. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He ordered them to take nothing for their journey except the staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. If any place will not welcome you and they refuse to hear you as you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. This is the word of the Lord. Freedom. People have died for it. Nations have fought to defend it. And historic words have been penned to declare it. Even the Bible our sacred text has something to say about freedom. In an awkward but memorable phrase, the Apostle Paul declares in his letter to the Galatians, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. The story of Jesus Christ as it comes to life 
and his followers is in the end a story of freedom. Freedom from what is the question. Well, today I want to explore the idea that one of the thing that, things that God wants to free us from is any preconceived notion or idea that limits our ability to live out our call to discipleship, our call to minister in the world. As Paul reminds us in his letter to the church in Rome, transformation takes place in part with the renewing of our minds. We not only need to be freed from the physical sins that enslave us or the injustices that restrict us, we also need to be freed from any thoughts that bind us. We need our minds transformed. Regardless of who we are and where we come from, left, right, doesn't matter. There are all things we need to unlearn, assumptions we need to let go of, preconceived notions that hinder our ability to follow wherever Christ would lead. In today's story, Jesus comes home. He comes home feeling really good about himself and his ministry and his mission. He has just set free a demoniac who's been living in chains, healed a woman who would not stop bleeding, and brought back to life a little girl who had died. He's on a roll, and he is feeling good. And he brings this energy and enthusiasm into the very synagogue, the community that he grew up in. And while he's there, he tries to teach the people, his people, all that he has learned from God in the world. And the results are not what he expects. Instead of being impressed by Jesus' teachings, we are told the people, his people, they take offense at him. So much so that he's unable to do much good work in town. He is so surprised by his inability to reach his own people Jesus, we are told, is amazed at their unbelief. But this amazement does lead to freedom. Freedom from the idea that he would do his best work with those he was closest to. Prophets are not without honor, Jesus declares, except in their hometown and among their own kin and in their own house. Back in 1976, America's bicentennial year, a writer, a creative writer, came up with an interesting idea. Our nation is 200 years old, he thought. I bet I can find someone alive today who is old enough that when they were a child, they remember someone who was then old enough to have been alive at the founding of the nation, a living link to the very beginning of our country. Well, sure enough, the man, the writer, found such a person, a Kentucky farmer named Vernon Ledford, who was over 100 years old in 1976. Burnham remembered that when he was a little boy, he was taken by a wagon to see his great-great-grandmother, who was then over 100 year old, years old herself, and who was a little girl when George Washington was inaugurated as America's first president. When the writer asked Burnham what he remembered about this unique encounter, Burnham said he remembered being taken into his great-great-grandmother's house. She was feeble, she was blind, and she was sitting in an old chair in the corner of a really dark bedroom. 
We brought Burnham to see you, his father said. The old woman turned toward the sound and reached out with long, bony fingers and said in an ancient, cracking voice, Bring him here. They had to push me toward her, Burnham remembered. I was, I was really afraid of her. But when I got close to her, she reached out her hands and began to stroke my face. She felt my eyes and my nose, my mouth and my chin. And all at once, she seemed satisfied. And she pulled me close to her and held me tight. This boy's a Ledford, she declared. I can feel it. I know this boy. He is one of us. One of the central questions of the Gospels is, who is my family? From the very beginning of creation, really, people have struggled, people of God have struggled to figure out to whom they belong here on earth. The instinct to search for and protect and cluster around our own people, our own family, our own tribe, as we encounter others on the countryside, has always been a temptation, a struggle for humanity. We witness this struggle in the gospel stories with the crowds and the leaders and the disciples and the family of Jesus who are all invited by Jesus to reorient themselves to the good news that they are all, each and every one, children of the living God. Jesus wants them and us to realize, to come to the awareness that there is something more powerful that connects us with others than our family, our nation, our political party, our race, or our tribe. We are all God's children. This is why I think Jesus keeps dragging us, often kicking and screaming, to the margins of society, to people we don't know. But we resist. Because, let's be honest, we feel more comfortable, more safe with our own people, with people who share our story and our perspective and our background. And yet, as Jesus learned today, once we are transformed by the gospel story, once we are commissioned to share it with the world, it seems we lose the ability to share the good news with our own people. It's as if the good news of a God of love and the change it makes in our own lives can only be received and heard and taken in by those with whom we are unfamiliar. In my premarital counseling with couples, I often tell them that a family system, a family structure, is like a mobile, those old mobiles hanging above a baby's crib, the ones with strings tied to different designs, you know, butterflies or birds. When you add to the mobile, or, or take away from the mobile, or change one of the objects attached to it, the whole thing goes cattywampus. It shifts and moves as it seeks and looks for a new equilibrium. I tell couples this so they will be ready for the unexpected resistance that will come from their family as a result of their union. Birth, death, marriage, divorce, it all shakes the family tree. Change is hard. Maybe this is what Jesus is getting at when he teaches us that no one can follow him who doesn't first hate their father, mother, wife, children, or siblings. <coughs> Jesus knows from experience, perhaps, that we are very tempted to live out our faith, to share our faith, to share our story with God, 
with the people we know best, even if our ministry with them bears little fruit. Perhaps this is what Jesus is getting at when he sends out his disciples to do the work of ministry. Fresh off the realization about his own family, Jesus sends his disciples out in pairs to surrounding towns with nothing with them except their staff. They are to bring no bread, no bag, no money, no plan, no connections. Just go to people you don't know with nothing but yourself and the good news I've been giving you. And then watch and wait and see what happens. Too often, churches that I've served and seen lament over what they don't have. We don't have enough people. We don't have enough young people. We don't have enough experience. We don't have enough cultural acumen. We don't have enough staff. We don't have enough money. And so we wait and ponder and form committees. We are good at forming committees. And we conduct surveys and double down as we wait on what we know, what's familiar, who's familiar. We often circle the wagons, even as Jesus calls us to minister to the stranger with nothing but ourselves and the good news that we've been given. We want to stay home where it's safe and familiar, while Jesus pushes us out towards the others with whom we have no natural connection. Dr. Brian Hare is a professor in evolutionary anthropology and psychology and neuroscience at Duke University. That's a long way of saying he's really smart. He's also the, also the author of the book, Survival of the Friendliest, Understanding Our Origins and Rediscovering Our Common Humanity. In his book, Dr. Hare makes the case that the mechanism that makes us the kindest people, the kindest species, on the earth also makes us the cruelest on the planet. He seems to have discovered a fatal flaw, as other scientists have as well. And the flaw is this, we, we feel more affinity for those who are most like us. This affinity is even baked into our DNA. Take the hormone oxytocin, which biologists know plays a key role in childbirth and breastfeeding. It helps people bond one to another. When biologists first discovered oxytocin, they were excited. When they, when they learned it was part of a romantic connection or a family connection, there was excitement among scientists around the world. They wondered that if you were to spray a little oxytocin up your nose, would you have the best date ever? Would you finally get along with your mother-in-law? Would you befriend the neighbor next door who drives you crazy? People were hopeful that oxytocin held a clue, a key to connection. But then came another news flash in 2010. Researchers at the University of Amsterdam found that the effects of oxytocin were limited to one's own group. The hormone not only enhances affections for friends, it can also intensify aversion to strangers. Oxytocin doesn't feed universal fraternity, it turns out. It powers the feelings of my people first. And this idea of my people first might just be the preconceived notion we most need to be freed from in these days. Like Jesus, we need to be freed from the idea that we do our best work, our best ministry in our own affinity group. 
It's a hard lesson to learn because it goes against our hardwiring and years of cultural conditioning. But as disciples of Jesus Christ, we do our best work with those who are different from us. Because when we interact with them, with those with whom we have no natural connection, we have to rely on God's mercy and God's grace. And those people who were strangers now become friends. On this day when our nation celebrates its independence, this is a good word for us to hear, I think. In this time when hyper-partisanship and toxic political rhetoric seeks to divide us one from another. What would it mean for you and for me, both as a church and as individuals, to see those with whom you share nothing in common as the very people with whom you are most able to witness to the good news of the gospel? What would happen if you were freed from the notion, the idea that you would do your best work, your best ministry, with the people who are just like you? I don't know for certain how effective we would be in our ministry. I'm guessing there'd be lots of mistakes made along the way. But like Jesus says, it doesn't work. You just shake your dust off your boots and move on. But I do know for certain that seeking to minister to and understand and care for and live with and love those outside our familiar circles of influence, I know from experience that that changes your heart and your mind. Because when we step out of our comfort zones into a place that's unfamiliar, we have no choice but to trust in the one who has called us to share in both word and deed the good news of God's redeeming love. And those disciples that were sent out two by two with only a staff, with no money, no food, who went from town to town, they healed people. They saved people. And they shared with people the good news of God's love. Amen.